Welcome to season three, episode three of the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. I'm Lola Dada Ali. In our last episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Melissa McDonald, president of the Liberty Mutual Foundation. She spoke with me about the importance of incorporating accessibility into corporate philanthropic pursuits. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with another influential leader about his career journey, his personal story, and how they've come together to make him the person he is today. As the old adage goes, to whom much is given, much is required. The person who spoke with me in this episode clearly takes this to heart. He is the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, yet was willing to have a pretty real discussion with me in a way that not only shows his leadership abilities, but his willingness to be vulnerable. He's taken the tough chapters in his life and has not only processed them, but appears to have drawn upon them to foster change in the community. As a culture, we have a tendency to focus on what I refer to as the finish line, particularly when we look at people labeled a success in society. We look at where they currently are, but we don't always look at the origin story and peel back layers beyond the role in life that they happen to be most known for. Without doing so, we can really miss out on the essence of what makes a person who they are today. In addition to being one of the most powerful people in business, he's also a proud husband and dad. His son was diagnosed with autism at a time when not much was known about it. So he and his wife began a journey of discovery, which he talks about in a pretty candid way in this episode. Depending on the level of community and medical support an autistic child needs, a family can undergo certain challenges in seeking the help they need. We talk about the isolation he and his family faced in an era that felt largely before modern-day autism awareness and now acceptance campaigns. Our guest today is David Long, chairman, president, and CEO of Liberty Mutual Insurance Group. He started working at the company in 1985. He was first elected president in June 2010, then CEO in June 2011, then elected chairman in June 2013. He has been a member of the board of directors of Liberty Mutual since 2010. His community affiliations are plenty and include being on the board of trustees for Massachusetts General Hospital, the MIT CEO's advisory board, and chairman for the annual fundraiser Aspire, an organization that provides social services and developmental opportunities for autistic children and young adults. He earned his undergraduate degree in math from Hartwick College in 1983, his master's in finance from Boston College in 1989, and was awarded honorary degrees from Hartwick College in 2014 
Bentley University in 2017, and Merrimack College in 2018. I first met David in the fall of 2019 at the grand opening of an All Abilities Playground in Texas, a playground that I talk about in more detail with the head of the Liberty Mutual Foundation, particularly season three, episode two. The humility David possesses, along with other top leaders at the company, ranging from his chief of staff to the foundation president, was both memorable and refreshing to see. It shows in both the previous episode and the one you're about to hear now. So with that in mind, let's get started. David, thank you. Welcome to the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. Thank you so much for making time out for us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Good to see you again. Let's dive in. I would love to hear more about your origin story, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up. Um, so I was born in Liverpool, not not to wealthy means by any stretch of the imagination. You know, just to give you an idea, I slept in the same bed as my brother. We didn't have a phone. We didn't have a fridge. So it was it was a pretty interesting upbringing. I ended up coming to this country on a soccer scholarship. And at the time, you know, unemployment in Liverpool was, you know, north of 30%, I think. And, and so I came over using the skills in my feet. Nobody really cared much about the skills I had in my head at the time. I think they might have developed over time. But that's how I got here. It's been, it's been a really interesting ride. And I, and, I, and I know this isn't what we're going to talk about, but I have to say that when I first came here, the people were so accepting of me and so helpful of me. I mean, I arrived at college. I didn't have any bed sheets, and people gave me bed sheets because I didn't have them. And of course, I was going to New York. I didn't know how cold it was going to be, so I didn't have a coat and because uh, I left in the summertime. So there's lots of folks who who stepped up to the plate and, and helped me out along the way, and and I'll never forget them. And I and I do my best to see if I can't sort of pay it forward as as I move through my own life here. So humble upbringing is, but certainly not a financially humble existence today. But it, it's been a little bit of a journey. Tell us a little bit about that journey to get you where you are now. Did you always know you would end up where you end or hope you end up where you end up? Or was it just a series of fortunate events or how would you? <laughs> There's a movie about that, isn't it? A series of unfortunate events. I, I had a series <laughs> of fortunate events. So as I say to people, I, you know, I've never been particularly ambitious, but I've always been competitive. And so not to the detriment of others, but everybody has fortuitous sort of events in their life. Look, I, I ended up coming here on a soccer scholarship, not because anybody saw me play, but somebody saw my brother play, who's older than I am. And and he came ahead of me. And, and then I came here sight unseen. So that was fortunate. And then my first job, I, I was an All-American Division One soccer player in college. And my first job, I was looking in the New York Times at English soccer results and I saw an ad looking for analytical people because I'm a, I'm a math guy. And, and when I sent my resume in, my first boss just happened to be a big soccer fan too. And he saw my resume and brought me in more because of that than my analytical capabilities. But I've been at the same company for 35 years and they've always given me opportunities and I've always taken them, which is what I say to younger folks all the time, which is people, people will know who you are and, and keep your head and look around. But 
you know, when opportunities come, you have to be prepared to take them. And sometimes it's not about moving up. It's just about getting new skills. And so, so yeah, I've, I've been at Liberty for 35 years. I've probably had 20 jobs along the way. And, and I think I've just about run out of them, but I was, I was pretty dedicated to, to my company and I, and I love my company and I, I feel a strong allegiance to it. I'm not sure that's the same today when, when, you know, young people sort of look for companies. It's, I think, I think what is true for young people today is they want to work for a company that's, that stands for something a little bit more than, than just making money. And so, you know, the ability to give back, support and causes, always trying to do the right thing. Those, those kind of traits, I think are more popular with younger people today. And we've, we've kind of always had that. And so it's worked out pretty well. As you moved up the ranks at Liberty Mutual, how did the culture help you as you learned more about your son and his diagnosis? The foundation in the company wasn't mine. It was always there, right? So coming from a place where I wasn't quite so fortunate, I I always thought about folks that maybe didn't get dealt the same hand I did or given the same opportunities that I had. And so that's always been always been there for me. I think, you know, what we've been talking a lot, especially probably in the last five or six or seven years, and then there's sort of heightened awareness today about diversity and equity and inclusion. And I've I've always and I've said to people at Liberty, hey look, I'm a I'm an English Catholic, which is a little bit strange and and I'm married to a Russian Jew, and my daughter is gay, and my son is on the autism spectrum. So if you don't think that that I value uh, diversity or I cared about it or I want to give people equity and, and opportunity, then, you know, obviously I do. And so the the my son really opened up, up my eyes to, and we can talk about his journey a little bit and our journey as parents, but, you know, the first reaction that people gave him was, more about fear and avoidance and yet he was my son and and all i saw was all the good things in him and um i think that's eye-opening to people so if you have that philosophy about diversity and looking for the best in people i just think it puts you in a much um much better mindset to do good when was he first diagnosed he was probably diagnosed when he was around uh, two years old, but he wasn't diagnosed with autism. Nobody said that word to us, right? So I think I think the first diagnosis was PDD, pervasive development disorder. So we we took him in for a hearing test because we didn't we didn't know any better, right? So we he wasn't sort of responding in the manner that we thought that he should. Because we have an older daughter, right? And so we're sort of saying that there must be something going on. Let's let's go check his hearing. And that's that's when we first heard about the PDD thing. And of course, you know, that that that's a meaningless thing to me. Okay, pervasive developmental disorder. What do I do with that? Right. So and then I would say it was probably about a year or 18 months later, so three or four, when when we when we were told he was on, on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And we, we had no idea what to do. There just wasn't the same degree of services that there are today. And so I've I got to give my wife an awful lot of credit in terms of being his advocate and pushing. And, and she has she has a much better personality than I do to make sure that he got what he needs. And 
and oftentimes we talk about you know we were we were sort of blazing the trail a little bit saying you know he needs he needs speech help and he needs you know occupational therapy and he needs to be socialized with other kids and he need you know and and at the time people just sort of looked at you and said that's not that's not what we do now and that's not what we do in schools but it was my wife mostly defined our own path for him i'm, I'm actually talking to a, an ex-employee of liberty next week he he sent me you know a couple of weeks ago his son has just been diagnosed and could he have a chat with me and stuff and so i'm chatting with him on tuesday just about and to connect him with people who we know and that kind of stuff and but today, I think there's a pretty good continuum of services from from early diagnosis all the way through young adulthood. And and you know, to anybody out there, you know, this this is a journey that's not going to end. But I think there's lots of good resources out there, and I think you should use them all and and be unafraid to to push for everything that you need to to help your kid. And and we're doing some work on the other side to push forward what we think other people might need that don't have the means. So. But it was it was hard at the time. I mean, just it was like a staring into a void. Unfortunately, you know, I think it's much much you you would be in a better position to to answer. But I think it's much much better today. I agree. I I think it's definitely better today. My kids are seven and ten, but my brother is older than your son, and he's in his. He's in his 30s now, and I can definitely relate to the helplessness you and your wife felt because that's how my parents felt, and that's how I felt as well. So, yeah, back then there was nothing. So just seeing the progression over the last two to three decades, it's it's, it's jarring in a good way. Yeah, I'll take it back a further generation. I, I said, you know, so my uncle would be in his 80s. He's passed away, but... He was in a mental institution and he was characterized as being schizophrenic. And as I now know more, he was autistic. I, I, I would guarantee he was autistic. And back then, he, he, was, he was put away to, to uh, not my words, but words that were used to, to sort of save him from himself. And I mean, I just can't imagine how difficult it was, you know, a generation before, well, two generations before your brother and my son. So, you know, if you think about it in terms of, you know, where we've come from locking locking people with autism in mental institutions and giving them all kinds of terrible treatment to where we are today, where it's still tough on all the parents out there, but there is a lot more support and uh, I think a lot more acceptance in community, uh, which is a good thing. Anyone who knows me, my motto is one day at a time, and that's that's why. That's what you just described. It's one day, a series of days at a time can create movements. There's, like you said, there's still a lot more to do, but it's when you compare it to not that long ago, it's, there's definitely hope. You, you touched upon community and I'd like to expound upon that. What role did community play in your family's overall development? You and your wife's realization. Uh that your son had autism as well as your son? With, with, a, with a couple of noti- notable, awesome exceptions, my son's aid in, in preschool and in, in early days in school and our immediate next door neighbors who were great, who took the time to, to get to know him, the support from the community was zero. We had people in our neighborhood who didn't want my son in the same class as their kids. 
neither one of my kids ever went to a birthday party. My son had no friends. We had no friends. You know, you you chat with you chat with people, and I was chatting with my two brothers-in-law one time, and they were uh, complaining about the fact that you know they were going to their kids' games on Saturdays and sporting events on Sundays, and I just said I've never been to one, so stop, you know, stop complaining about it. And so I I do think it's much different now, and I, and I have to say that the the few people who were there for us were just so helpful and so spectacular that they they were so big made up for the fact that there wasn't any kind of general support at all. People just, they didn't understand and they, they were afraid. And, you know, in the age of COVID, it was almost like those parents out there who thought their kids were going to catch it or something. I mean, it's just, in looking back, it was, it was a lot more painful for my wife and, and for me than it was for my son. I don't, I don't think he really paid that much attention to it at the time. But yeah, the, you know, the difference between in a, you know, having a welcoming community and people who understand and people who want to help and versus just that isolation of, we didn't have a single friend, friendly couple from either one of our kids, because my daughter has some, some issues too from their time in uh, school. So as they moved on, we put them in, in different schools and, and sort of more therapeutic schools. And, and we were with parents who were kind of like us and we did make friends then because we, to, to your point about how you and I know each other, we, we've got a common bond and, and we get it. And so we did develop relationships then. But so if there's a message out there to people who are listening, whether you the chances are that you know somebody on the spectrum. You have no idea the impact you can have by taking a kid to the movies or having them over to your house to play a game or take them off somebody's hands for a couple of hours. And, and as you said, you take it one day at a time. When you have a little kid like that, it's one hour at a time. And, and having a little bit of help and support goes a really goes a long, long way. Yeah. We always sort of said, well, what do people do if they don't have resources that we have? Right. So we sort of set about spending a lot of time committed to that too. We will definitely dive into that because yeah. even, even um, my, my husband and I often think about that too, about what happens if this is a very expensive endeavor, not just emotionally taxing, but it could be ex- like extremely expensive. Yeah. I, I, I think I heard on, NPR a couple of years ago, a middle class family dealing with children on the spectrum are no longer a middle class family, uh, socioeconomic, just economically speaking. Yeah. So we will definitely dive into that. You again touched upon multiple areas. In our podcast, we devote two whole episodes to community because it really is that important and sure. finding the right circle of people who understand you. Even now with more autism awareness, we did lose some friends as well. And it was it was interesting. You know, that initial they'll invite you to the house and then my daughter presents more classic autism than my my son can play neurotypical yep. quite well. Um, my daughter, not so much. And all of a sudden you'll be invited maybe once or twice and then all of a sudden <laughs> the invitations just magically go away. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, it, I, I do know the feeling later on, even even with family, you, you, you know, you would go and you're just waiting for something to go wrong, right? So, but it all depends, back to community, it all depends about level of understanding and, you know, it can make a huge difference, yeah. But we never had a lot of those invites to begin with, so I didn't feel that anxiety or that pain, but I know... I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, so back in the early days, and you, you get brave and try and take the kids out to the mall or something, and you know, within within an hour, my daughter would be hanging onto my wife's leg, and she's sort of dragging her through the mall because she, you know, and and people are looking at you, and you're just like, oh man, you have no idea, <laughs> you have no idea, like you know, we're just bad parents and we treat our kids cruelly. You know, it's just it's it's hard. So I, I feel for you. It sounds like you and your wife took a difficult situation and turned it into a way to help others. You've mentioned a couple of times now about helping people in similar situations who don't have the means of Mr. David Long. My son went to a summer camp. We found a summer day camp for him when he was about five or six, and, and it was run by a small group of, of uh, clinicians from in a lost corner of Mass General Hospital. And, and um, it was the first time he'd been to a camp. It was the first time he was with, really with other kids to play. It was the first time he was with people who had the knowledge and the understanding to actually, you know, give them a, have, them, have them have a good time. And, and the kids there were, were funny. I remember there was one kid who could identify what car you drove by the sound of your engine, which, you know, is a cool, cool skill to have. So, but it was really sort of the first time that you could sort of drop off your, your son and, and feel like he was going to be okay for a couple hours. So as a result, we ended up at the time, I think, you know, they, they weren't very well funded. And, and my wife said, oh, Dave will help you raise money, which I was happy to do. So we probably raised about over $20 million for that organization since that day. And, and essentially what we sort of, I don't say pushed them to do, but what we did was at the time we were talking about programs. So it was, it was summer camps and after school programs just for a couple hours to give people a break. And then it moved into, you know, sort of in-school programs and longer camps. And then it moved into preteen programs. And as my son got older, then it was teen, you know, sort of teen endeavors. And then, into college boot camp and into internships. And so we sort of back to <clears throat> back to what we talked about, which is there is a path for kids today. And so now we sort of push them on, the, on that continuum. So as as Oliver got a little older and it's like, okay, well, he's 12. He can't go to, to sort of camp with five and six and seven years old. So what is it that we can do to give him sort of social experiences and keep him developing and stuff? And, and so we sort of just kept pushing and pushing and pushing until – you know, he um, we did the pre-college boot camp thing. He did go to college and got a degree. We couldn't be more proud of him. He lived at home three years, and then he actually went and stayed in school for the last year, which was pretty awesome. And then we got into internships and trying to find positions, and 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 we we haven't quite mastered getting the internship into full-time employment, but that's the next phase. A lot of things. It doesn't doesn't really matter whether you're autistic, if you're in foster care, or, or or getting other services. Once you hit 18, they all disappear. 
And that, to me, is a scary proposition. The most recent thing we just did, and this is something that, that my wife Stephanie and I did on our own, we, we just bought a house in Boston. And the idea behind it is to have a place where young adults on the spectrum, because my son's in his 20s now, can can get together and do social things that isn't in a clinical setting. I mean, these poor kids have spent their life in, in clinics and doctor's offices. And so so this is a house and we'll have like a movie room in there and, and the kids will drive, the young adults will drive the program. And we just had somebody come in and talk to them about what, what it's like to be working in a vet, vet's office and kids were interested in that. And we had uh, cooking lessons and teaching them life skills and independence and you know, they do game night and they do, and we're going to build it out into to a, have an internship and a work component to it. So I would describe it as a place, safe social place they can go, a place to learn skills, a, a place to meet friends who are their own age, a place to get a little more independence and, and hopefully a place where they can go to get coached on, on, on how to find uh, gainful employment, which, you know, is, is a huge self-esteem boost. So that's our latest endeavor. We just bought the house in December and we're in the process of fixing it up and we can't do an awful lot of stuff until COVID is, is done. But so that's almost like the, I won't say the, the, the final leg on the journey, but it's, you know, we're, we're trying to build out on that continuum of services through school and after school to, to young adults or to, to post college where 20 somethings can talk about whatever it is they want to talk about and, feel good about watching a movie together or, or hanging out or playing games or exchanging ideas and coming up with new ideas as to what they want to do. And and we'll help them along the way, giving them classes on how to cook and a whole host of other things, how to pay their bills. And, and uh, yeah, so that's our, that's our latest and greatest endeavor. That is awesome. And it's very true about that transition from high school to adulthood. And I think psychologists refer to it as the cliff that the services and everything else just fall off. Yeah. So I do think that's the next great frontier because there are so many rich resources now in many areas for younger people on the spectrum. But that's a huge dearth that needs to be addressed. No, it sure is. And, you know, I'm a little bit ahead of you here on in terms of, you know, look, I, at some point I'll retire here. I think I'm going to spend most of my time when I retire doing nonprofit stuff. And, you know, I have to think about the future and my kids and who's going to look after them and where they're going to be and, and how they're going to live. And, and so the journey, you know, I, I used to laugh about. Uh, I tell kids and young, young adults if they had a baby and, you know, they're all excited about having a baby and, and of course, the babies are always up crying. And, and I used to say to them, you know, as long as you don't go to bed tonight thinking, I hope tonight's the night that the baby doesn't cry. As long as you know the baby's going to cry, then it's not so bad when you wake up. As long as you know that, that this journey is going to go on for your life, I think that helps you adjust to the fact that, as you said, one day at a time, you know, tomorrow there's still going to be something that you're worried about. Tomorrow there's still something that you think you can make somebody's life better or, or, or give them another skill. And, and that's going to go on. And the scary part is it's going to go on when, when we're not around. And that's the thing that we're concerned exactly. about most at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. I think you and I share the very important, maybe a tagline that I use called denial is the enemy of progress. Um, <laughs> I think if you you have to have a certain level of self-awareness and know 
the unique challenges your child has. And of course, as a parent, it's our job to do our best to block and tackle, if you will. But my children, like I said, are seven and 10, and I make it a point to, yes, practice mindfulness, but but try and put them on a path to where I'm also thinking about the 18-year-old version and 21-year-old version and 25-year-old version. What can we do today? whether it be therapy-wise, whether it be exposure to certain community members that help them towards that path. Important. It's important. What advice as a father, if you could give advice to your younger self, like take yourself back to those early days of the diagnosis, what advice would you give yourself? What would you do differently, if anything? I, I, I don't know. I, I guess that um, you just talked about denial, and to me, don't ignore the signs. Everybody has a vision of what they want their son or daughter to be, and and oftentimes it's you know just like them. But I, I think don't be in denial. And even, even today, you know, given our experiences, I can see other other adults, other young adults, other kids, and I see the traits. That they're plain as day to me, but they're not plain as day to the people who love that love them, but don't want to acknowledge. So, so I would I would say, hey, look, we took our, our son in when he was eighteen months because he wasn't hearing properly. That wasn't the issue, right? And so, I think the the thing is to to don't ignore the signs. There's lots of services out there. The sooner you engage in the services, the more progress your your child's going to make, and and you know, I, I have to say that if, if I look at my wife and I, she was the one who was all over it. And I was the one who was, got brought along for the ride. It probably would have been better if we were side by side and had that, that same sort of, we, we need to face this and we need to, to advocate and we need to push forward and, and be accepting rather than denying that the kid might need a little more help than some others. As you know, Lola, it depends where, where these young people are on the spectrum and sometimes it's a lot easier to notice and sometimes it's it's really kind of subtle but those characteristics still exist and and to help people deal with them when they're younger it just makes a huge difference so i think i would have been a little bit more vigilant a little bit more diligent a little bit better of an advocate but i I can't find any fault with my wife because she was all of those things that was, thank you. That was raw and honest. Um, I think in these situations, sometimes there tends to be one parent that sees it maybe sooner and just starts running. And then the other parent may take some time. The, the closer you are together and the more aligned you are, the better chance and more consistent you are, the better chance you have of succeeding and, and helping as much as you can. And coming at it from different directions, I just think makes it twice as hard. And, and there's only, there's only the, the biggest loser is the obvious loser, right? And so, so I think you have to focus your attention on what you think is best. Easier said than done, as you know, but I think being consistent and aligned is a huge, is a huge boost to, to development. Now, there are studies, and not always pointing in this direction, but there is, I guess, anecdotal evidence um, showing that marriages 
involving children on the spectrum may be yeah. may have a slightly higher divorce rate. How have you yeah. how have you and Stephanie like weathered this storm? How would you how have you done it for so long? You know, it's a good question because it's not as if the path is is straight and flat, right? So it's bumpy and windy, and I would say that we both had had a pretty good focus on what we thought was best for our kids, and that's always been at the center of things. You know, a couple of little anecdotes from from my life, and before we were married, I went back to England, and they didn't know my wife to be at all, and. We're just having a chat and, you know, I said to my father, when I was a big man, I said to my father, well, dad, I didn't come here to ask you, I came here to tell you. And he said, that's okay. I just want to tell you that it's not about you anymore. So if you want to get married, it's not about you. Yeah, so so that sort of stuck with me a little bit. And then one time I was working, I was doing a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions stuff for Liberty. And I was gone a lot and my kids were little and probably about the, the same age as your kids. And, and I came home from California, flew on the red eye back and I went into my son's room and he's like, dad, what are you doing here? It's just like, uh Oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. So, so I took those things to heart. Right. But that, that's, that's me sort of adjusting to where I needed to be, to be in the right place to support. But I don't, I don't think my wife's ever wavered in terms of, I sort of drive to try and get my kids to a place where they're as good as they can be. So, so I did. I did a lot of the making sure that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. But, but we've we sort of always been focused on that. And you know, and I I'd be lying to you if I said it was always easy because it just isn't. You have to focus in on what's important. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So far, so good. We're up to you know thirty. Thirty-six this year in a couple of months, so we're still going. Going back to you know, being an autism parent, you and Stephanie, where, what career trajectories did you both think you would be going on, and how has this changed the nature of how you view work, generally speaking, or did it at all? The game plan when we were first married was both would have careers. Uh, we didn't really spend an awful lot of time thinking about it, but that was the idea. And my wife is a psych major with a minor in women's studies. And that was only because they didn't have a major in women's studies, I think. So, you know, as we've moved along to this point, the most insulting thing I can call it is a corporate wife, because that wasn't how it was supposed to be. And But as things evolved, she couldn't have done anything that was more important than, than there was nobody better at it than than her for making sure that our kids got through everything that they needed to get through. And and I, you know, I ended up in a position where I was making more money. And so I did that piece and tried to do my best. I mean, I was always, I was always home on the weekends. I would work long days, but I would never disappear on the weekends. I used to have a little mantra that the only time I played golf was when I was out of state, so I never, I never took the time to do that kind of stuff when when my kids were little. So she did the heavy lifting, I did the financial lifting, and we we sort of both did our best to make sure that as we we just talked about in terms of middle class families, our middle class families have kids on the spectrum, and 
so we did our best to give them financial support and parental support and we divided that up in i would say uneven doses i got i got one big piece of financial support and Steph got the big piece of emotional and developmental support and tried to balance it out as best we could but that that, that wasn't the game plan going in the game plan was you know more about two professionals having careers and Steph sacrificed and i didn't again there's some there's some similarities here i took time off for almost and time off is relative you're not really taking time off mm-hmm. i guess out out of the traditional workforce let's call it <laughs> you're not taking time off um, yeah and, and and that's yeah that's 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 a change of stress or a change of responsibility yeah. it's yeah. not time off yes 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 I want to talk to you about legacy. Obviously, there's the ones that most people think about when I use the word legacy, monetary. You've obviously established that for your family, but legacy as in the people's lives you've changed. What's your definition of legacy? The first thing that comes to mind when I think of legacy is there's a high likelihood that we will not have grandkids. You know, that's, we haven't given up yet, but that's, that's a painful thought that a lot of people don't contemplate. That wasn't something that we thought about early on when we first got married. We thought just like everybody else, kids and grandkids and great grandkids and all that sort of good stuff. And, and I don't think as we sit here today, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen for us. So, so that's a, a little bit of a, a, a sadness that, that we live with. So yeah, legacy more about less about money, more more about what we can do in terms of, you know, we feel pretty good about the path that we've laid and the services that now exist for everybody. We really want to grow out the common room, which is our new charity. I am going to spend time developing better and more opportunities for young people to get gainful employment. The legacy component to me is is more about what we can leave behind for others so you know I'll, I'll always be the past ceo of liberty or whatever it might be and i feel really good about what we've accomplished as a company both as a company and in the community but what we can do to continue to help folks is, is more about where our heads are at at the moment so i don't want to say it's a reaction to but it's a counterbalance to and obviously we we need to worry about making sure that our kids are in a good place and they get supported and um, have what they need when we're gone. But if we could have something that was a little more permanent that others could use, that's what we're trying to build with with the common room now. So hopefully we can build that out to something that's a little bit more than a single house in Boston. Maybe we can do it in other places. Maybe we can expand it a little bit. And I think that's probably what the two of us will focus in on is I stop doing this pesky day job and start doing something in retirement. So I think that's the direction we'll go. But you know, the legacy part of we, we have to worry about the future for our kids and we'll do that. But there's a sadness about I have a brother, so he has a daughter, but no sons. I have a son. and So there is an element of we might be the last of the longs. And, and that's kind of a sad thing that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, but it's it's there. I was successful in my career. That's that's something that I was fortunate in and I'm, and I'm proud of. But as I said, it's not my identity. It's 
you know, my identity is as much about being the father of two kids that need some help and there's lots of other families like me. So to the extent that we can provide something in legacy format that can go on after we're gone, I think that would be a good thing. I think more people should view themselves from an identity perspective outside of their job for that very reason. I know you interviewed Melissa McDonnell, who, who's the president of our foundation. And when I got this job, I made I made Melissa a promise, which is, you know, the most successful we are as a company, the most successful that we'll be in, in, in terms of what we do in the community. And and I think I think I've lived up to that. She had, she had an exhibit that said something along the lines of, you know, our, our corporate our giving's gone up annual at an annual percentage rate, eighteen percent since I got in. So I felt pretty good about that. And then we cranked it up a little bit to help some of our partners through COVID last year. I think we did another fifteen million in giving last year. And so having having the job has its benefits too. So I, I don't want to downplay that, but you know, we can use this position to do a little bit more and I can use what this position's given me to do a little bit more. And I think both of those things are good. So the the common room, you know, all God willing, it'll, everything will be super successful and you expand, just throwing it out there. Perhaps you should expand in Texas, just throwing that out there around Plato, <laughs> around that Dallas yeah. area. Just, you know, since you already have operations out here, I just thought I'd throw that out. We, um, yeah, we sure do. Um, <laughs> so once we get this one up and running, I'll call you up and see if that's the next next best place we can we can move to. Because you know it's yeah. it's one of those things where you'd love to change the world, but you have to do it sort of one one thing at a time, right? right. You you, you um, know me, David. I will follow up. So. Actually, talk about. I know I, I know you will. Um, but part of what we'd like to do is if we if we get a blueprint. as to how to make this successful then it becomes easier to replicate in other places right so that's that's part of our deal and and as you and i both know there's families everywhere that need a little more support if only if only we could spread common rooms and support like as fast as covid we'd be in good shape very true very true thank you for listening If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you may be listening to. Also, please share and subscribe. If you're interested in how this podcast came to be, please check out our website at notyourmamasautism.com and follow us on Instagram at notyourmamasautism. In our next episode, we begin a segment where we highlight representation in media. Our first episode within this series details this through the eyes of a director of a Pixar animated film who speaks to how the personal fueled his art. See you soon. Not Your Mama's Autism podcast is hosted and written by my mom, Lola Dada Ali, and it's also co-written and produced by me, Fella Ali. My dad, little sister Alero, and I are all occasional contributors. My dad, Tosin Ali, also helps produce sometimes. Big thanks to my aunt, Wolane Williams Ali, who did our graphic design. See you guys soon. <laughs>